Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're, we're working our way through the parables of Jesus through the lens of Matthew on Sunday mornings, Luke on Sunday evening. So we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke this evening, Lord willing. Um, but I must confess to you, we're not actually going to look at a parable today. False advertisement. Just call me mainstream media and you'll get over it real quick. Um, but uh, uh, we're actually going to look at a metaphor which sets up a couple of the parables here in chapter 18. Um, as we'll see, the, the metaphor of children uh, is a dominant theme of this chapter. So, um, so let us begin here. Matthew chapter 18, you'll find on page 867 in your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We can get you another Bible as well, unless you want that one. But the main thing is for you to have a copy of God's Word. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you as always for your love and your mercy. We ask, as we always do, that you would open our hearts, that we would understand your word, our mind, that we would um, receive it, our eyes, that we would see your glory, our ears, that we would hear and heed, our mouth, that we would speak the truth and the hope we have of, of Christ, and our hands and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Jesus. May you transform us, body and soul, that we would be children of God, adopted into the family of God with an eternal security. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have no doubt that when, when your children were born, particularly your, your firstborn, but really when all your children were, were born, you... You had, a, you had a mixed emotions, didn't you? I can only imagine what it would be like for, for my wife to finally to see after, after nine months of anticipating just, just the joy and the excitement and just the overwhelming emotion she went through and to watch that was awesome. I, on the other hand, I still remember the first time I, I held both of our kids, but really particularly our first one, uh, because I didn't grow up around babies. I didn't grow up around kids. I, I, I didn't. I'm the youngest kid and the first one with, with, with children, right? So, so it's, I didn't have nieces and nephews. I didn't have any of that. So I remember the first time I held our firstborn, and, and then my emotions were, okay, now what? Right? <laughs> I was so worried about the labor, you know? I didn't think too much but came after it. In fact, we took classes in anticipation of the labor. And, and, and part of that was we, we talked about how to swaddle a baby, how to change a diaper, how to uh, uh, do, do the exercise of putting in a car seat and taking out a car seat. You, you burn about 1,500 calories just doing one of those. Um, and so we, we went through all that sort of stuff. But the second that baby's born, you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? I have no idea how this thing works. And it made it particularly nerve-wracking when, when we first got married, as a wedding gift, a family member got us a cactus. And I remember with that cactus thinking, okay, if we can take care of this cactus, we can say that perhaps we're ready to raise a child. If we cannot take care of this cactus, I mean, a cactus doesn't want to be bothered. It's got needles on it, so you'll leave it alone. And it died within a short amount of time. We couldn't even take care of a cactus. So I was a little nervous. What do we do now? 
I still remember they're in the hospital. Uh, those first few diaper changes, you know what I'm talking about? Like the worst experience you will ever have as a, as, as a parent. And I remember I figured out early on that we had all these people coming to see the, the, the babies, right? And I was like, well, would you like to change the diaper? Would you like the hope? Would you, right? That's, that's how I got out, out of a lot of, lot of that. But when you really think about it, what Jesus does here is quite offensive. You are like a child. It's not the only time we get this in the Bible, right? Perhaps you, you, you've recited it so many times in your mind, you don't really think about its implications. But, but think about what it is David is saying. The Lord is my shepherd, which means I am like a dirty, filthy lamb. Ignorant, lazy, and everything else. Here, Jesus says, the Lord is my father. Therefore, I am like a child. In fact, to understand that is to understand this this entire chapter. This this chapter is dominated by that metaphor of a child. Verses 1 through 4, Jesus argues that only a child can enter the kingdom of God. In verses 5 to 11, he argues that, uh, or he shows us the connection between the kingdom of God and the treatment of children. In verses 12 to 14, it's the kingdom of God and the care of children. Verses 15 to 20, the kingdom of God and the discipline of children. And finally, verse 21 to 35, is the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of his children. This metaphor of entering the kingdom of God like a child is a central metaphor of this entire chapter. And there are parables and there are everything else found within it. But at its core is that metaphor that we must become like children. This passage opens up with a great challenge. We see it there in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I don't know if you've listened to a lot of sports radio, but I will occasionally. And, and one of the things I've found with sports guys is when there isn't anything to talk about sports-wise, let's just imagine a scenario where an international pandemic shuts down everything in the economy, including sports, right? And you, and you still got to fill an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. So, so there are a number of topics you have in sports radio that are called evergreen. They, they, it doesn't matter when you bring it up. What the context is, you're going to get a lot of phone calls and you're going to get a lot out of it, right? You're able to feel airtime with these evergreen topics. Perhaps the most prominent evergreen topic in this area is, of course, should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? I bet all of you have an opinion that no one else cares about right now about that subject right there. Let's think of another one. Is Kentucky basketball the greatest college basketball team of all time? Then I look at their football record right now, and that is all I need to see about that. These are evergreen topics, right? Now, the disciples had an evergreen topic, and it's right here. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, we see this pop up throughout the Gospels, throughout all the Gospels. They keep popping up, and this is certainly their evergreen topic. Many of you all know I've, I've coached soccer quite a bit over the last few years, and we just started our spring season for middle school boys soccer at the Christian Academy. I'm a head coach there, really excited about it. But we, we practice with the girls, right? Uh, and, and, and middle school is that age where, where, where the girls are more mature because they hit adolescence earlier, and they dominate the boys a lot of times, and I find that hilarious. Um, but but they, they practice together, and every time there's a water break, the same thing happens. Moses parts the water, and, and the girls all congregate in one area, and they do two things. One, they go get a drink of water and use the bathroom 
in groups of three or four. It's bizarre to me. I don't get it. I'm a dude. That'll get me kicked off Twitter saying that, but I don't get it, okay? The boys, on the other hand, they take a 10-second water break, sip, and they're back out on the quarter on the, on the field, wherever it is we're having practice, and they're taking their ball, and they're seeing who can kick it the highest and see if they can get it stuck in the rafters. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them, right? No, man, watch this. I can knock out the light, and they'll kick it way up there. Or say, no, 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 man, I can kick it the distance of the court. Watch this. I can bust the ball. It'll, it'll kick so hard. And they'll kick it, right? And, and you're thinking, you're on break. Enjoy it. It's not recess, okay, <laughs> right? There's the difference between men and women, boys and girls. The girls want to talk and all that sort of The boys, they got to prove their manhood. What they're saying is, who's the greatest on the team? Don't forget that the disciples here are likely teenagers. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, you'll notice in the opening words, at that time, the language here literally it means in that hour, which means... That what happens in chapter 18 fits within the context of what happens preceding him. Remember that the, the Gospels, or really the Bible, weren't written with chapter divisions other than the Psalms, right? And none of them have that. They were added later by translators and editors for the sake of readability. And so what we see here is what happens here at the beginning of chapter 18 is connected to the chapters before it. And since chapter 14, if you're just reading through Matthew, you would think Peter was the greatest in the kingdom of God. After all, in chapter 14, it wasn't Bartholomew that got to walk on water. In chapter 15, Peter speaks on behalf of the twelve. In chapter 16, is it to Peter that Jesus said, On this rock I'll build my church? Yeah, it depends on if you're Catholic or Protestant, but nevertheless, Peter is at the center of that. Chapter 17, Peter was the most vocal at the top of the Mount Transfiguration. Later on, chapter 17, a bunch of tax collectors approached Peter. To, to, to ask about the, the pain of, of taxes. You remember that Jesus then pays taxes out of the mouth of a fish? It would be a good time to remind you that taxes are due in a few months. Okay? Thus, naturally, both the reader and perhaps the disciples might assume that to Jesus, Peter is the greatest. He's likely the oldest, the likely only one married with children, and the leader. So many would, would think, human nature would think, that, that Peter is the greatest. Now, aren't you glad, you and I, as sophisticated as we are, enlightened as we are, with modern technology and everything else, aren't you glad we don't act like this anymore? When you read a text like this, you're like, man, those people back 2,000 years ago, full of arrogance, full of arrogance. That reminds me real quick, I forgot to do something. <coughs> Smile. No, I'm just kidding. Right, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that, all right? Of course this is still an issue today. Selfishness and arrogance, it dominates our so-called sophisticated and evolved culture as much as it did then. How much of our lives are dominated by competition and envy and bitterness and, and rivalry and malice and anger and resentment? And do not all of these stir from the same pot of pride? But the disciples here in this question are leaving something out. Yes, it is Peter who, who uh, in the context, Jesus says that, uh, blessed are you, uh, Simon, son of John. Yes, but don't forget, immediately after, Jesus says, hey, Satan, get behind me. Don't forget in chapter 17, Peter wasn't alone when he went up to the Mount Transfiguration. James and John joined him. Don't forget that there on the mountain, it was Peter, not James and John, who were rebuked by God. 
And don't forget that, yeah, Peter may have taken a few steps on the water, but it was he who was sinking and crying out for salvation. So if Peter wasn't the greatest, then who was? Disciples want Jesus to solve this question once for all. We'll see something similar this evening from, from Luke. Which of the twelve is the greatest? Now, again, this, this is an evergreen topic to them. They don't learn their lesson here. They'll learn it eventually after the resurrection. But, but, but later what we find is this question comes up in the context of the Lord's Supper. You know the story, right? Jesus takes the traditional Passover he gives them bread, he breaks, and says, this is symbolic, this is metaphorical, this is proverbial for you to see that my body is about to be broken for you because of you. This is my blood that is shed on your behalf for you because of you. And they take their last scalp and they say, oh, Jesus, by the way, can we not all agree I'm the coolest in the kingdom of God? Do you, if you were to, 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 to harmonize the, the, the Gospels there, and that can be dangerous to do at times, but if you harmonize in Luke, they're, they're debating that topic, who's the greatest. If you add in John, you want to know what Jesus does in light of that context? He walks away, which is always good advice. He walks away, takes on the form of an oriental slave, and washes their feet. Here the greatest becomes the lowest while the lowest think they are the greatest. That's the challenge that we have here in these opening verses. But what about the child that we see here? Verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's with a child in his lap. What a beautiful image that is. Jesus explains that one must be converted and become like a child in order the kingdom of God. But what does he mean by this? Well, the answer is given very clear in humility. Can I, can I give you two words to look for here in our understanding of this text? The first is humility. The second is desperation. Humility and desperation. After all, think about it. Children have achieved nothing. They've accomplished nothing. They've done nothing. They've learned nothing. They've gained nothing. They've accumulated nothing. Children have nothing to offer. I mean, think about it. Chances are you did not have children in order to relieve stress. You did not have children to save money. I remember my boss. I was 16, 17 years old, you know, making money which was impressive to me, and, and our, our uh, minimum wage is not what it's supposed to be or, or whatever, I don't know. And, and I remember that, that I didn't have any bills, right? Still living with my parents, all that sort of stuff. I had a girlfriend, but, so I had plenty of bills. But anyways, um, my, my boss says, look, now's the time you need to start saving money. I'm thinking, I'll save money when I'm married and have kids. <laughs> uh, youthful wisdom minus the wisdom. But you didn't have children to invest in retirement, did you? You didn't, you didn't have children to live a worry-free free life, right? No, no, that's, that's not why you did that. Children come bare and naked and are completely and utterly dependent. My children have never offered to cook me a fancy dinner. They've never offered to go in the office for me. They can't. But this is not the first time Jesus has uttered something paradoxical like this. You can go back to the Beatitudes, all the way back to chapter 5. Remember when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? We read that and like, I don't know what it means, but it's really spiritual, so I like it. I'll hang it on my wall. You remember what he says, that it's, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's the mourning who, who will be comforted. It's, it's the peacemakers who will see God. And we called sons and all that. So, so would you get at these paradoxes? How can, how can the first part of each beatitude uh, match with the second part of beatitude? And it's almost like Jesus is saying the same thing here, isn't it? Blessed are the children, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is not a text about the salvation of physical children. I say that as a Baptist. But an illustration of what the king is looking for in us. See, the gospel turns everything on its head, and the ministry of Jesus itself is paradoxical. We expect a Messiah that to be born in a palace, not in a barn. We expect his parents to be royalty, not poor. We expect him to associate with the religious and the wealthy, not the riffraff, the sick, the sinners, and the outcasts. We expect him to enter Jerusalem on a white stallion, not on an unused donkey. We expect the king to lead an army, not carry a cross. We expect him to stay dead, not raised forevermore. The gospel with it is paradoxical. God exalts the humble while he humbles the weak. He, he, the foolishness of the cross shames the wisdom of the world. The weak are made strong, the stronger made weak. The last will be first, the first will be last. Sinners are made righteous and the self-righteous are declared sinners. So the question of the text then, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? That's the real question, isn't it? Isn't that the question that we are to ask ourselves? And Matthew has shown us the answer in this narrative. The gospel doesn't come to the arrogant, the proud, the self-assured, but to the humble. This is why throughout the Gospels, the elite, the sophisticated, the connected, and the wealthy avoid Jesus. Their self-confidence robs them of the kingdom. But this is why the sick, the hurting, the lost, the demonized, the dead, the sinners, all of them flock to Jesus, humbled by their condition, yet are lifted up by the king. Only when we understand the depth of our depravity the level of our sin, our nature as rebels, will we ever be able to enter the doors of the kingdom? Remember that the gospel is not good advice, but good news. This morning, you don't need therapy. You need truth. You don't need self-esteem, but salvation. You don't need to fear man, but to fear God. You don't need subjective help, but an objective rescue. We must come as children to the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were to read the Gospel of Matthew, particularly emphasizing his miracles, you're going to find this, this pattern throughout. In fact, let's do a quick Bible study. You're not doing anything else. Turn to chapter 8, will you? Chapter 8. Chapter 8, right? Chapter 8, it begins a series of miracles. The first miracle narrative in Matthew starts in chapter 8. There's a reference to miracles in chapter 4. Chapter 5 to 7 start out, but chapter 8 is the first narrative. It's a leper. You know about lepers, right? They're unclean outside the gates. They have no access to synagogues, temples, or friends, right? I mean, they, they literally create a, a leprosy colony. I mean, you imagine that Facebook group for a minute. My goodness. Anyways... When he came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, or not Mount Sinai, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, wherever that is, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him, which means the crowds ain't following him no more. Because the lepers go around unclean, 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 and the crowds will split. They don't want to be considered unclean or to get this disease. Imagine if he had COVID. Maybe that'll help you. Not wearing a mask, I bet, too. Just unbelievable here. Didn't cover his nose if he did have a mask, I'm sure. 
But a leper came to him and knelt before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Those are the desperation there. His leprous friends can't help him. His other old friends can't help him. His job can't help him. He's an outcast. Jesus, if you will, will you make me clean? Go down to verse 5 to 9 here. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. That's a Gentile, Roman soldier who's, who's in charge of Roman soldiers who may have Jewish blood on their hands. Probably not on the average Jew's Christmas list is what I'm trying to say. Appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servants will be healed. You remember Jesus later, he'll say, well, what do, you, what do we have here? I've not seen since desperation and faith and humility in all of Israel. Go down to verse 24 and 25, the calming of the storm. Jesus is out there on the boat. He's asleep. He's tired. And behold, there arose a great storm on the seas where the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. And the disciples went and woke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. You see the desperation in their voice. We will die unless you do something. Go to chapter 9, verse Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. Notice the desperation there. How would you have said a sentence like that? <laughs> there you are. You're not answering my text. I wanted to give an update about my daughter. No, no, no. He comes with tears. He comes with desperation. My daughter has just died, but Come. Lay your hand on her, she will live. And on the way, what happens? Verse 20 and 21, Jesus is interrupted. Why don't you, you can't stand that, can you? He's interrupted by, by, by a woman with an issue of blood there in verse, verse 20 of chapter 9. Notice there, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I could touch his garment, I will be made well. Again, she's like the leper. Because of her issue of blood, she's perpetually unclean. So as she enters the crowd, she's trying, unclean, unclean. And she's also saying to herself, I will not be unclean if I can touch his robe. Notice the desperation there. I will march to the crowds. I will push everyone away. But I've got to have Jesus. He's my only hope that I have. Verse 27, we see the blind men being healed. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed. Isn't that strange, blind men follow? You'll never read that again the same way, will you? How do blind men follow? How come so many who see can't? Isn't that the beauty of the text? Two men, blind men are following Jesus. What are they crying out? Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. What are they saying? We are blind, but we can see that our hope is found only in you. Humbled by their state, humbled by their situation. They are desperate for Jesus. You can turn to chapter 14 for the sake of time. I'm probably already going to go over. It's okay. We're meeting early now, so you ain't going to miss lunch. The Methodists will always beat you the Cracker Barrel, even during COVID, so get over it. Chapter 14, verse 15 to 17. It's feeding the 5,000. You know it well. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. Boy, those you love conservatives, right? <laughs> you know, they can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. We in the desert, Jesus. <laughs> Send them to the marketplace, right? Then what does Jesus say there? Verse 16, Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> They're like, oh, we ain't that good at cooks, right? <laughs> you know, uh, 
But then they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Notice the desperation. All we got is a little boy's lunch. How are we going to feed all these people? How can we do it? The answer is you, you can't. Unless you're desperate enough. Finally, chapter 14, verse 30. Here, remember, we've already referenced the story of Peter walking on the water. Remember, Peter's like, okay, if you're not really a ghost, tell me to come out here, right? Verse 30. When he saw the wind, that is Peter, he was afraid. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. There's a problem in my Bible there. Is it in yours? There's a period at the end of that quote. Shouldn't it be about 14 explanation points? If this were a tweet, it'd be all in caps, wouldn't it? If it were a text, it'd have an emoji. Of, I, don't, I don't do emojis. It may have a gif or a gif, depending on where you are on that spectrum, of, of someone in panic, right? Peter is saying, hey, Jesus, just want to give you an update. I'm sinking. Hashtag LOL. That's not what he's doing. He's crying out. He's desperate. I will die unless you reach down. Stoop so low as to pick me up out of this water. These are the miracles that we've seen in Matthew thus far. What's the point? We'll never come humbly to the Savior unless we understand we are desperate in need of a Savior. That is the faith of a child. No pretense. No promises. Just faith. Just faith. That's who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Not those who are arguing over it, but those who come desperately, humbly to Jesus for it. If you know Matthew well and you know my teaching of Matthew, perhaps you, perhaps you, you may have noticed something is missing so far. Since Caesarea Philippi, remember, chapter 18 fits within the context of what precedes it, right? The, the language makes that very clear. And so, so what you have since chapter 16, chapter 16 is the turning point, right? This is when Rocky finally decides he is going to fight Apollo Creed, right? I mean, this is the turning point, right? That, 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 that everything changes. And at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says that the, that the gates of hell will not win against the church, right? We get that. But then immediately after that turning point, upon that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you remember what Jesus does? He begins to point them to a cross. He speaks less of the kingdom, though he still does, but he talks more about a cross. And so in chapter 16, verse 21, right after Peter's confession, we get from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. He must die. He must suffer. He must be crucified. But verse 22 of chapter 17, it says again, while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised the third day. And then we get this near the end of chapter 17 and they were deeply grieved. So, so put the context together. Jesus says, okay, now that you got the kingdom, we saw the kingdom parables the last few weeks. Now we see the church, right? Upon this confession, the church stands and falls. But, but what is going to conceive of the church is the cross. And Jesus is saying, it's the cross. After every teaching, it's the cross. After every miracle, it's the cross. I need you to see the cross. Everything's about the cross. And now the second time, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. And they are grieving uh, grievously, it says. And a few verses later, after they pay some taxes, what are they doing? They've turned grief into pride. There's a major lesson in that, isn't there? Pride always clouds the cross. 
It always blinds us from the gospel. Focus on yourself. And you will rob yourself from focusing on Jesus and his cross. And thus you will fail to love others. Pride is the enemy of the gospel, is it not? It's pride that God has kicked us kicked out of the garden. And for many, it's keeping us out of the kingdom. Many of us here, perhaps here this morning, trust in religious resumes as benchmarks of, of kingdom greatness. But Jesus calls on us to come humbly like a child. Many of us trust in our upbringing, our traditions, our family, our values, and our politics. But Jesus calls us to come humbly to him like a child. Many of us trust in our own good works, our abilities, our education, or our kingdom. But Jesus calls on us to come humbly like a child. See, it's only when we recognize how ugly we really are can we truly see the beauty that is Christ in his gospel. It is there that Christ makes sinners saints, outcasts, citizens, orphans, children. But I'm afraid that for many American evangelicals, though we may think we are great, we are in fact least in the kingdom of God. Consider our worship. Humbled by our sin, do we really extol the name of Jesus? How many of us approach worship not as children, but as consumers? Consider our focus. How many of us throughout our lives truly hunger and thirst for the kingdom and his righteousness? Consider our Christian walk. Do we try to be in control even if it means disobedience? Is the gospel relegated to a few Sundays each year? Are we desperate for Jesus? Lewis is, C.S. Lewis is, is wrongly attributed with this. But we'll give him credit anyways because he was a cool, one cool cat. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Can, can, can I just add a little bit to that often attributed quote to Lewis? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less and thinking about Christ far more. That is true humility. Because a child comes to his father, comes to her mother, and must think less of themselves, more of mom and dad. Who is the answer to their greatest need? So too are we before God upon his throne. What did the old hymn say? Not one we sing very often. It's not very popular, but it's still worthy of our attention. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. 
Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. It isn't until we become like children can we truly enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray.